Now, would you please put that in the King James, my brother? The word mature actually means perfect. Everybody say perfect. Thank you. Teleos in the Greek. We're understanding and learning who we are in Christ in these services. And I pray that it's been encouraging you and that you don't just think of it as mere head knowledge, but you see it practically in how you are supposed to live. Look at that part of the verse again, that we may present every man what? Perfect. Come on, say it out loud. Perfect. Thank you. In Christ Jesus. The word perfection has given many people a bad taste in their mouth, especially when it comes to Christianity and those who consider Jesus their Savior. But can I tell you something that's much more scandalous than saying I am perfect in Christ is saying I'm a Christian. Did you ever think about that? A Christian is much more scandalous as a term than to say I'm perfect. Because not only are you saying you are perfect when you're saying you're a Christian, but you are saying, I am like God himself. Have you ever thought about the actual word godliness? How many know that's an attribute that Christians are supposed to have? We'll get to that in just a moment, that you're supposed to be godly. Just take out the L-Y and put it as the suffix and what it means, like, godlike. When you say someone is godly, you are saying they are godlike. So when I say that I'm perfect in Christ, this is not scandalous. This is actually the ABCs and the elementary truths of Christianity. Once again, we learned in times past that perfect in Christ is not a perfectionism like you would think of a perfectionist. In other words, perfect in Christ is a spiritual declaration of not only one's position in Christ, but also their nature in Christ. The big word for that is their ontology. Everybody say ontology. You learned a big word today in church, and it means the nature of something. Google and check me and see if I got it right. Because, of course, a professor wiki is much more smarter than me, right? Wikipedia and Google University is better than the one I went to. Half T's, YouTube diplomas all over the place in most cultures and, and people you meet today. But the truth is we are perfect in Christ, not just positionally. Some people would say, I agree with you, Joe, that when a person becomes a Christian, that a Christian is in the perfect place to be in their relationship with the Father. So they would say, Joe, I agree with you that Christians are perfect in Christ positionally. Like today, you are in the perfect place to be, not just us as a church, Metro Praise International, but you're in church. How many understand what a position means? few of you. Let me give you about four more examples because I know some of you can relate to me being Polish. We like to have things repeated. I remember one person said, because he's a Polish Italian like me, he said, I'll make you an offer that you can't understand. I'm Polish and Italian. Make you an offer you can't understand. Okay, so as a Polish person, I know some of you may need the explanations. I need it sometimes, so I'm going to repeat it a few more times. If you're in a car on the highway, you're in the perfect place to be on the highway. Does everybody get that? You should be in a car. If you're not in a car, if you're walking on the highway, that's not the perfect place to be. Okay, let me give you another example. If you're sick, the perfect place to be is where? Hospital. Now you're catching it. You're getting it. Okay. If you want to go swimming, the perfect place to be is in the water, right? Or in a pool or at the lake, depending on what you prefer. Okay, everybody say positionally. 
Thank you. This is how people will agree with what Paul said. He wants to present every man perfect in Christ. A lot of Christians who have studied this, most haven't as a general, like if you're looking at the Christian body, probably 99% of people have no idea what I'm talking about, why I'm wasting my time on this, but it's important to Paul, it's important to us. But out of the 1% that studied it, this is how they would understand it. Out of that 1%, there would be a majority who would say, Joe, I get it. Paul wants us to be positionally perfect in Christ. In other words, if you want to go to heaven, where's the perfect place to be? In Christ, right? If I want to go to heaven, where do I need to be? In Christ. But listen, it's much more scandalous than that. I'm not just saying that you are perfect in Christ. I am also saying that your nature is perfect because you can be in a car, perfect place to be on a highway, but nothing changed about you on the inside. You can, be going, you can go swimming and be in the water and nothing change about your nature. Does everybody get that? So I'm making a more bolder declaration than just a Christian, a follower of God, is in the perfect place. I am saying the Bible teaches that you are perfect in your nature. Come on, how many have heard it before? It's all right to say amen if you've come to, to Bible class or Sunday service before because it shouldn't be new for everybody, right? You should be getting this, and it's exciting. But what am I not saying? What I am not saying is that you're going to be perfect now in everything you do. That would be a third concept of perfection. The first one would be a positional concept. We would all agree with that. Most Christians who have studied this would say positionally, I agree with you, Joe. They would disagree with me in our nature. Then we would probably all agree that Christians, even though they are positionally perfect in Christ and in their nature perfect in Christ, they don't always act perfect. And how many would agree with that? Okay, so now let me tell you what, I'm, what I am saying and what I'm not saying. What I am saying is that you are perfect in Christ today. You are in the person of Jesus Christ and your nature has been made like him. I am not saying that you will now become a perfectionist. And that everything you'll do will be perfect. So everybody just take a picture of you now because you're perfect. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is because you are positionally in Christ and your nature has been changed, you will do things like Christ more. In other words, since he has made you sinless, you now will sin less. Once you realize that you are in Christ and your nature has changed, you will do something different about it. You will live perfect because you be perfect. Amen? See, that's a great point to get. I didn't make it up. I'm just giving it to you out of the Bible, but it's radically changed my life. Where people generally start in Christianity is at, is at perfectionism. And most of them don't even know where to go be perfect by the commands of God. They go right to the Old Testament, and they try to do it that way, and it becomes a mess. And then they give up. And they say, well, I don't know how to keep a Jewish diet, go to church on the Sabbath, you know, do all of these uh, civil rules, like stone people in adultery. Like, I don't understand all that, so I just quit. They don't understand that the commandments of God are in the New Testament for a Christian. We are in a new covenant. And so if you were going to try to be a perfectionist, the way you would start is from Matthew onward. Can I hear an amen? And the moral laws of the Old Testament are the same of the New Testament. Morality has not changed. 
Nine out of the Ten Commandments are moral laws. One of them is a religious law, worshiping on the Sabbath. But nine out of the ten we keep. I think it's awesome that we put it up on courtrooms. It reminds us of the lawgiver and that God has given us a law. But if someone was to ask me, Joe, do you strictly obey the Ten Commandments? No, I do not keep one of them. Now, some try to spiritualize it and say the Sabbath for me is Sunday, so therefore I go to church on that day. But that's not how the Bible looked at the actual Sabbath. The actual Sabbath was from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. Okay, And so that would be their Sabbath. We do not keep that Sabbath as a religious law. So nine out of the ten are moral, and that is what we keep. And so when you go to the New Testament, none of those moral laws have changed. The first law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and put no one else above him, to have no idols. How many believe those are moral laws we still keep in the New Testament? Right? And then thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, murder, you know, honor your parents, thou shalt not covet. All of those laws are reiterated in the New Testament. So if you wanted to be a perfectionist, you could go right to the New Testament and try your hand at it. But how many know without being in Christ, having that position first, and without having your nature changed, keeping those laws are just as hard and as frustrating as keeping the Old Testament 613 laws. I mean, can I hear an amen for that? I mean, let's try it right now. Go get a sinner and ask them not to lust. How long do you think it's going to be before they lust? They're going to keep lusting, right? Let's tell a sinner not to covet. Let's tell a sinner all of these things. What you're basically asking a dog to do, uh, you know, like a sinner is asking a dog not to be a dog. You're asking a pig not to be a pig. You cannot change someone's nature by changing their behavior. You can dress up a pig to now act like a dog, but it's still a pig. And you can get a dog to act like a pig, but it's still a dog. Does that make sense? You can get sinners to try to do Christian things. Come to church with me. Love the Lord your God. Try as much as you can to put him above everything else. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. But all you have done is you've made a sinner a little bit better at a person as a characteristic, as a sinner, but you've made them a little bit better, but they're still a sinner. You have not changed a sinner into a saint by behavioral modification. Okay, just like I cannot change myself into a bird by behavior modification, and we can get into the whole transgender discussion now, okay? And then you know, you know that's not where they're stopping is with genders. They also want to be animals now. Have you seen that? Where now humans want to be animals, and they want to be children. Some of them want to wear diapers, and it just is sick, and we're not going to waste our time on that today. But just understand this. You do not change someone's na- nature by changing their behavior. Just because a sinner tells less lies does not mean they're still not a sinner. Here's a good way to understand your nature. You are what you are because that's what you are. (laughs) I know it's just silliness, but it's funny, and it's good to say it like that because it helps you. You are what you are because that's what you are. That's your nature. Now you cannot be something other than what you are. The law of the excluded middle philosophy teaches us that. You cannot be A and B at the same time if A and B are different things. So how does Christianity work? Does Christianity change nature by behavior modification? No, it changes your nature first, then your behavior follows. Okay, so just thank you for helping me, those who are here, because I really want to take our time. So if you want a sinner to stop sinning, you don't tell them to stop sinning merely. You tell them to become a different nature. You tell a sinner to become a Christian. You tell a sinner to become a saint. A sinner then must repent, come to Jesus, and be changed to be a saint. How many have heard the term born again? Thank you. So the term born again 
is the entire game changer of Christianity. All other religions are working on your behavior modification. I love what C.S. Lewis said. All religions can be based in uh, two categories, Christianity or Hinduism. And if you study Hinduism, you'll see how every other religion, Islam, Buddhism, and so forth, all reflect that kind of thought. Because in Hinduism, it's basically two forces, good versus evil, and the one that you do more of is what you'll become more of as you pass in reincarnation. And then by changing your behavior, you change your nature over time, and then at some point, you become one with your, your God, your creator. Islam, though it has the, um, the outside appearances of a Judeo-Christian-like faith, they're a cult, really, of our belief, they actually have more in common with Hinduism than they do with our belief. Because we have a grace-through-faith message. This has even been taught in the Old Testament. True Judaism has a grace-through-faith message. They believe in a message, a transformation of works. That you have an angel on one shoulder, if you've ever seen the cartoon like this, an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other. Have you ever seen that? Uh, those cartoons, that's actually based on Islam, which goes back into Hinduism. The idea that every day you're choosing between good and evil, and then you're going to have your judgment. For them, it's scales of justice that Allah will judge you by. And the angels will actually load up the sides of that that scale with what they've seen you do and tempted or led you to do. So the angel will come and say, look at all that I got this person to do for the good, and then they'll put that on the good side. Then the demon will come, and the jinn, and then say, this is all the bad that I got them to do, and they'll put it on the other side. And whatever one outweighs, the, the, the one that has the most is what you will suffer for. Uh, you'll get your reward or your punishment. Catholicism actually does the same kind of thing. Catholicism teaches a religion of works. That's why you continually have to do all of those things that they're telling you to do so that you can be in a state of grace. Grace is not something you have and receive and are like you, you've been made a new thing or a new person. It's something that you're always trying to achieve. That's why if you look at the end of Mother Teresa's life, she wasn't even sure of her salvation. Is everybody tracking with me? So you could put it all into two categories. You could say the religion of Hinduism, which we could just call works, or Christianity, which is the relationship of grace. How many can say amen for grace? Amen. amen. So now going back to what I'm saying, even if you tried in the new covenant to do better and to work on your works so that you can do the right thing, at the end of the day, all you're going to have is what you do, you do, you do, you do, you do, and then you'll have a bunch of doo-doo. And your good works will actually be filthy rags in the sight of God because your nature never changed. All you did being evil were some good things. Remember, Jesus spoke like that. He said, though you being evil still know how to give good gifts to your children. Does anybody remember Jesus talking like that? So he says to them who they are in nature, though you, looking at them, though you being evil, that's who you are, you still know how to give good gifts to your children. That's how he starts off the example of how much more so will our Father give us the Holy Spirit when we call out to him. So what was Jesus differentiating there? Jesus was differentiating between their nature and their behavior. He was saying your nature is wicked and evil and nothing can change that. And though that's what you are, wicked and evil, you still have the potential to do some of these good things. The sad thing is, is that most people today in our culture are not aware of this distinctive, and so they're thinking about the things they do 
which in many ways may be good. You know, they take care of their children. They go to, to, to their job. They work. They provide. They're helpful. Maybe, um, you know, their neighbor has some issues. They'll go there and help. But they don't understand they're still evil. And so when we as a Christian come tell them that they're going to hell without Jesus, what's the first thing that comes up in their mind is all of the defenses of their behavior. So they'll say, look at what I did, look at what I did, look what I did. But they have forgot the entire concept that their nature has not changed by those things. So their nature has already been determined based on how they've been born. Everyone is born a sinner. And the Bible teaches us that then as sinners, we then sin. Please go to John chapter 8, verse 33. And you'll see that God is merciful to our children even though they're born in the nature of sinners. How many know children are born in the nature of sinners and not in the nature of saints? How many know you have to teach them to tell the truth but not to lie because lying comes naturally? Do you understand the word naturally? What does that mean? It's according to their nature. My children can throw fits at any given moment. Who's teaching them that? Has the Sunday school teacher taught them how to throw fits? No, that's in their nature. Now, what does God do with children in their nature when they die? He gives them the grace of Jesus Christ, and he gives them the kingdom. And some have speculated how they then proceed from that point on. Do they get to enter the kingdom as children and grow up with us as we, the Bible says, rule and reign upon the earth? There's an opportunity for that. That's beautiful. And then you'll see that Proverbs come to pass in a whole other light. Those who are, you know, raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that when they're old, they won't depart. Imagine us raising the children of abortion or the children, those who have died in handicap or early deaths or just children from accidents, you know. Uh, imagine us raising them in the kingdom of God. That, that's, that's an interesting thought. Others think that God gives them the chance to be, uh, to be born again, and you get into a little, not born again in a spiritual sense, but in a reincarnation sense. And some people hold that thought, and they say, we who have lived never get to be reincarnated, but maybe they get a chance to live, and then they get to come back again. And so maybe uh, someone here, like one of us, was once an aborted child, a child that died, and now we came back. And we wouldn't know our past life. We would just have been sent back into another body. Everybody go deep. <laughs> things to think about, but that would take away totally from the idea that those who have once lived get to come back as something else. So reincarnation would never fit in that way. This would just be for the souls of the departed children. People have speculated. Obviously, we have no idea. Now, look at what John says here. When John was teaching the Jews about this principle, the Jews basically said in verse 33, we are not enslaved. Uh, enslaved. We have never been slaves. How can you say we're going to be free? Because he had just said before that, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Here Jesus says the principle that I'm teaching to you. Look at verse 34. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to what? Sin. So if you sin, you become a slave to what? Sin. So children born, we all as children were born as sinners, but then when we sin, now we become the slave to sin. So now rightly we deserve our punishment. And then we can talk about an age of accountability. When is punishment dealt to the human race? At some point, everyone's going to be held accountable. We call this the age of accountability. We've guessed. We don't know. So that's why I tell children, you better live right because you might be uh, old enough to go to hell. Can I hear an amen to that? All my children over here, you better live right because you might be old enough to go to hell. I don't know that age of accountability. But I do know this, you'll be held responsible for that which you know. The Bible speaks about those who have not received the gospel will be judged by their conscience. So sometimes people say, well, what about those who have never heard the message? 
or those who lived at different time periods, what happens to them. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that they'll be held accountable to their conscience. Your conscience teaches you not to be an idolater. It's common sense not to worship in, uh, an image of something and call that your God. Because to, to worship that image, you had to make it. If I had to make the thing to worship it, obviously it's not my God. Does everybody get that? And it would be common sense to look at the things of the universe and to know that those things aren't your God. The sun would not be your God. The tree would not be your God. So the Bible says he's going to hold them responsible to whether or not they listened and followed the knowledge of God to what they would have. And what do I think that looks like? I've mentioned it before where missionaries have reached unreached people groups, and it talks about what it looks like is them worshiping one God, in spirit, so they don't have images of that God, and then they honor God's moral law. Because how many know it's common sense you don't kill your neighbor? How many know it's common sense you don't steal from your neighbor, right? So these would be the laws they would be held accountable to, and then God will judge them according to that. Now, removing all of those obstacles out of our way, we're back to where we started. Perfect in Christ. See, if you're not perfect in Christ, you're a slave to sin. So what I'm saying today is not something that just works for me or for a pastor or for someone who's gotten really good at Christianity. Now I've achieved something that you haven't. It's really the starting place for all Christians. That's why I said from the beginning, calling yourself a Christian is actually more scandalous or controversial than even saying you're perfect in Christ because perfect in Christ could just simply mean to some people your position. But to say that you are Christ-like means you're not just staying away from sin. It means you're also like God in how you think, act, and talk, and live. How many act like God? Amen. Sometimes people get mad at us and they say, who do you think you are? Well, I think I'm like my God. I think I'm like God. What, what do you want me to be like, the devil? I'm supposed to be like God. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Just a few more things in introduction, and then Lord willing, we'll get to some practicals today. This is part four, so you're coming today as a visitor. If this is your first time, thank you for being here. You're coming to the last uh, message in a series. I hope that encourages you. Notice the word that comes before perfect in verse 48. It's a two-letter word. What is that word that comes before perfect? B. B has to do with being. I be because he be. How many have being right now? Do you be? That's right. You be because he be. The Bible literally says that we be in his being. We live and move and have our being in God. We could not be without him. That's why if you can ever get someone who dis, uh, disbelieves in God as an atheist agnostic to stop and talk with you and, and to help them not be ornery, you can blow up their worldview by God's grace to help them see the truth of the reality of who God is within moments. You could just ask them, why do you exist? Or how do you exist? And if they say something along the lines of science, ask them where science comes from. As I always say, science is not a word on Sesame Street, S-C-I-E-N-C-E, -E, dancing around and talking to everybody. So where is science? Well, I'm here because of science. Okay, where is it? Can I hold, it in my, can I hold science in my hand? Science is what minds do. Minds discover the laws of science. So where are those laws? Were they here before we got here? So then they're not dependent upon humans. Will they be here if all humans leave? Will gravity still be here if all humans leave? Yeah, so where is that law? That law is rooted in nature itself. So then now you can ask them, did nature give itself its own laws? 
In other words, did nature be birth itself in order and in law fashion? Is nature its own mother? Mother nature. So nature gave birth to nature. No, it makes no sense. Where did mother nature come? Where did it come from? God the Father. <laughs> what you call a mother, I say, was created by my father. And all the glory of the universe, the Bible says, is his footstool. So all that men and women are living for on this earth, even as far as they can go in the Star Trek and Star Wars worlds and Marvel worlds, is still nothing but the footstool of my God. Asgard and where Thor is from, that's the footstool of my God. Beyond the, the universe where Star Trek goes, beyond the galaxy rather, that's the footstool of my God. Can I hear an amen? Amen. amen. So these are beautiful truths. But notice what Jesus said. He said, be perfect. Not just be in a position of perfect, but be in your nature perfect. As who is perfect? Who is the one we're being perfect as? The Father. You see, I can say to my children, you know, do this as I do it. You know, vacuum as I vacuum. Clean your room as I clean your room. But how could I ever say to them, be all that I am in my nature, be in your nature. How could I do that? It's impossible. I don't have the ability to transform their nature. And I don't know if they would want to be exactly in my nature, have the big nose. I think some of them have a nicer, smaller nose than me. They would have my acne and all of those other things. But it would be impossible. You would get into the realm of science fiction, making clones and all of these other things. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He, he is saying, this is only done by my Father. I can't make myself perfect like my Father. He is already assuming in the very thing he's told us to do that you need God's help. How many know you couldn't be perfect like God the Father without God the Father helping you? And it's going to be more than anything we could possibly imagine in the natural world. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This is why when Paul begins to teach about what it looks like as a Christian, as a Christ follower, as someone who is God-like, they say that there had to be a change of your creation. That's your very creature status had to change. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is that positional statement. The new creation has come. Do you see why I not only believe we're positionally perfect in Christ, but we're ontologically perfect in Christ? Highlight in Christ and new creation, please. I am positionally in Christ, and from that position, I am now a what? New creation. That is for every Christian. And I keep using the word scandalous because it's like, ooh, are you saying that you're perfect? Yes, that's what I'm saying. But I'm saying it out of my own ability. I'm not saying because I did behavior modifications, whether in the old or new covenant. I'm not saying that I've done it somehow through religion, doing more, bad, uh, more good than bad. I am saying this is the work of God in me. This is his work. His work put me in Christ. The Spirit of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit of God put me in Christ. And when the Spirit of God did that, the Father now said to the Spirit, make him new. Just like I come from Adam and Eve who were made by God in the Garden of Eden, I now get a born-again nature and I start over again where they messed up. Humanity gets a restart in Christ. Amen? Amen? Notice it. Here it is. If anyone is in Christ positionally, 
Your life has been changed. You're no longer in darkness. You're no longer in the devil or in the spirit of this age. You are now in Christ. What has come, brothers and sisters? Say it together. One, two, three. The new creation. One more time. What has come? The new creation. If there's any wonder, he repeats it. The old has gone. The new is where? Here. Gets even better. Have you read down to verse 21? Because that's a popular phrase in the scripture, and I'm glad we've learned it. We're new creations. But I got one that even says it more clear. Look at verse 21. God made him, talking about Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become, in nature, become the what? The righteousness of God. Woo! Because new creation could be ambiguous to us. I mean, new what? A creation. A creation of what? If I gave you the choice, would you want a new Prius or a new Ferrari, what would you want? But they're both new creations, right? They both came off the assembly line. They're both brand new. But what would you want? A new Prius or a new Ferrari? We're made now in the image of God, and what do we become? What is our being? The righteousness of God. I wish you could look in the mirror and see your spiritual nature right now. Because you and I as Christians, this is what C.S. Lewis said, if we could see our own natures, we would confuse ourselves with God and think we are God-like now. You wouldn't know the difference between you and God if you could see your nature. That's how much he made you in his image. Let me just ask you this, just so you don't think I'm blaspheming here. When it says, I became the righteousness of God, is there another righteousness other than the righteousness of God that God possesses? So when I become that which God is in righteousness' sake, how am I distinguishable from him in righteousness? I am not. I cannot become more righteous than the righteousness of God. Now, so before somebody shouts out blasphemy, thinking that I'm going to become a Mormon and believe in the plurality of gods, this is the divine mystery, that in to the Trinity, I now partake in divinity. It doesn't mean that I ontologically become a separate God called Joe that now is as righteous as God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because that would mean that I would take the righteousness of God unto myself and separate it from him. So now there are two things that are called the righteousness of God. That is not what we believe. That is what morons, I mean Mormons, believe. We do not become separate gods. But what do we do? We become partakers of the godliness, of the God nature, of the righteousness, and we share in it for all of eternity. Turn with me to 2 Peter, if you don't believe me, chapter 1, verses 3 and onward, because that is the exact language of Scripture. Partakers of God-likeness. Partakers of the divine nature. His divine power has given us everything that we need to live a God-like life, a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises, and they are amazing. Here they come. So that through them, these very great and precious promises, you may participate in the what? In the jacked-up nature? In the nature of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, part sinner, part saint, know that you may participate in the divine nature. 
having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, brother, please put up an appropriate picture of a centaur. Yes, I got to show it again because some people don't get it. We got to get this in an illustration form because some people miss it. You are participating in the divine nature. Are you also participating in the sin nature? Not according to the Bible because how else could you be perfect in Christ? I'm going to talk about your flesh in just a few moments. Trust me, we'll get there. By God's grace, I will complete this for you so that everyone will be without excuse and then those who want to live this way will be empowered. How many are not trying to find a loophole but actually want to live this way for Jesus? Amen. But those who want to find a loophole, I got you. Trust me, I'm going to close every loophole for you. I know your flesh is going to come to your mind. Well, I still live in my flesh. My flesh is not perfect. How does that work out? I'm going to show it to you in just a few moments. We'll get there. But this is still the introduction, okay? This is still just the review. Everybody say review. Amen. I'm just adding a little bit of meat on the bone because I want you to chew on this. I want you to think about this. Thank you. Okay, I don't want to cause anybody to stumble with this crude creature up here. But this is how some Christians think about their life, that their spirit, you know, their inside is changed, but everything on the outside is still part of that animal nature. And so then they'll say, this is their spirit man, and then this is their fleshly man, and so they're part saint and they're part sinner. But that's not how the Bible looks at us. How can such a crude creature participate in the divine nature of God? How could this thing be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? How could this be pleasing to God and be the righteousness of God? You would literally have to look at yourself as two selves. There's a horse self, and then there's a human self. Now may we rid the, uh, the, the screen from this decrepit picture, please. Thank you. And go with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Who are you in Christ? You are a new creation. Amen? You are perfect. You are the righteousness of God. You are partaking in the divine nature. Why has this happened? Because you've been saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Every other religion, including Roman Catholicism, has a boast before their God. We do not. And yet, we have the greatest promises that their God never can give them. We get to start at perfection. They're still working for it. They have to work to be a conqueror. I start as more than a conqueror. They have to work for the righteousness of their God. I'm given the righteousness of my God. They never get to see their God because it's a false God and the ideation of their mind. But I participate in my God's nature every day. I dance with the divine, y'all. little dance right there. I dance with the divine, and he loves my corny little dance. I dance with the divine. I'm in the divine nature. They're looking for it, trying to become one with the tree. I'm already one with my God who made the tree. So it says you're saved. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's our choice to receive it or reject that gift. But notice now what it says in verse 10. For we are presently God's handiwork. A centaur, a half-Christian, half-sinner, is not God's handiwork. That's the handiwork of the devil who corrupted our image. The handiwork of God is to make us his righteousness. Now, notice what we're created to do. We're created positionally in Christ to now do those good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're positionally perfect. We're in our nature perfect, and now we've been created to do perfect. Not do perfect, but do perfect. Any dude perfect fans here? They're Christians. They love Jesus. 
But I'm not talking about dude perfect. I'm talking about do perfect. The way that now I can do perfect is because of those preceding two things. Because I'm in Christ, because my nature has changed, now when I look at sin and obedience, I don't look at this as a burden. I don't look at it as something that's unachievable. I actually look at the commands of God as a blessing and a benefit to my life, something that I'm empowered and made to do. Can I get an amen? I just want to show this to you quickly, and then I'll get to the practical application. Go to 1 John chapter 5, please. If I said to you right now, I need you to run and get up to the speed of 200 miles an hour or else, you know, some type of a threat. Now, I'm not making that personally, but I know that, uh, it, you know, this kind of uh, thing could happen in life. You know, someone could threaten us and ask us to do something that would seem impossible, right? Maybe you've seen different movies like Speed, Don't Stop the Vehicle or Everybody's Going to Die. Now, listen, I'm not making this my threat to you, but I'm saying if someone made a threat to you, but it was so outlandish you couldn't keep. You know, let's go back to that illustration with Matt or uh, Keanu Reeves in Speed. It's an older movie, but hey, don't slow down the vehicle. I think past 70 miles an hour, the thing's going to blow up. Well, it's, it's not reasonable, but it still can be done. It, 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 you shouldn't keep a vehicle above 70 miles an hour, but it, but it could be done. There, there's, there's some kind of hope there, right? But now imagine if I said to you, like in Speed, you've got to keep the bus running 200 miles an hour or you're going to blow up. How many know the, the movie's over in 20 seconds? The bus cannot go up to 200 miles an hour. There's, there's no movie. There's no suspense. It's like, start now. It doesn't go, there it is. The credits start rolling. Good try, everybody. You couldn't do it. Now, I want everyone to think about this. This is how people think God is talking to us about his commands. People think God is saying to us, I will save you, not damn you, if you keep my commands. And so they jump right to perfectionism, and they think God is saying this is how they're going to be saved, confusing him with all the other false religions of the world, and then they fail miserably, okay? And then when we as Christians come to them and we're preaching on the streets, we're preaching against their sin, they may even already know that these things were wrong, but now they're angry with us, and they have many reasons to be angry, don't get me wrong, but here's maybe one reason why they're angry with us, and that is I can't stop doing what I'm doing. I am powerless to make this thing happen. So you're telling me I need to stop being homosexual if I want to go to heaven. I was born this way. I can't stop. So now you're telling me you're God sending me to hell for something that I cannot stop doing. How many think there are sinners that think that way? That we're asking them to do something to equal salvation. So sinner plus fill in the blank, do something equals their salvation. That's what they think a lot of them were preaching. So sinner, stop lusting or you go to hell. But sinner, if you can stop lusting, then you'll go to heaven. And so they look at the thing that we're asking them to do based on their past experience of failure, and they basically go, I can't stop this. I can't do this. Or, you know, sinner, love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll go to heaven. And then they look at their neighbors, and they're like, there's no way I can love these neighbors as myself, okay? There's no way, you know, sinner love the person in traffic, you know? And they look at themselves, and they're like, there's no way I'm loving this person in traffic, okay? How many think that's, that's a lot of what sinners actually think we're preaching? I think a lot of them think that. We, we, we may disagree. You may not think a lot of them, but I got the mic, and you don't, so let me talk about what I think for a little bit. I'm just being honest. I think a lot of them think that. 
They're down deep inside recognizing there's something wrong. I've even had some of the most flamboyant and boisterous people out of the LGBTQ go, I get how God wouldn't like this. Like they're honest. Like they understand that it should be not just LGBT, it should be LGBSTD because they see all the STDs in their community. They say, I've had them be very real and honest with me going, I can see how my God wouldn't like this, the God who created me. I, I could see how this wouldn't be good. But then they'll come back with something like, but I can't stop. I'm, I was made this way. This is how I am. And the same thing is when I talk to young people, when I go preach at the colleges and high schools, they'll say a lot of the same things like we're saying here. Like they want the murder to stop. They know a lot of the music they listen to isn't good. They know that, that, that um, Cardi B shouldn't be singing about her private parts. You know, like they get it. Like they understand. Like there's just an understanding. There's a consciousness, a, a conscious uh, a feeling that they get from their consciousness. Like inside they know they're wrong, okay? But what do they think we're now saying to them? Stop so that you can change. Don't do this anymore so that you can change and become like me. Or start doing these good things like reading your Bible, going to church, and then you'll be a Christian. And they miss the entire point. Commands, everybody get this, are not for sinners. There is only one command for a sinner that they can keep. Repent and believe. That is the only command a sinner can actually keep. Repent and now believe. That's it. They can't do any other of the commands. They can't love their neighbor as themselves. They can't stop lying. Now, once again, we talked about behavior modification. They may try to do some of these things, and on the outside, it looks like it's going well for them. But remember, they have not changed their nature by that behavior. And even though they're not lying as much as they used to, how many lies does it take to become a slave to lie? One. How many lusts does it take to become a slave to lust? One. We've already read that, right? So... No matter how hard they try, they cannot achieve that goal. But here's what they can do. They can repent and believe. What are they going to repent for? They're going to repent for the sin that they have been living in because of their unbelief. Why did Adam and Eve commit their first sin? Because of unbelief. They did not believe. All sin stems from unbelief. Some might say pride. Pride comes from unbelief. Pride is a disbelief about who you really are. If you knew who you really are, and if Satan knew who he really was, he never would have been prideful. He disbelieved that he was a mere creature of God. He thought in his mind he could become like the creator. That is stupidity. His disbelief and the creature-creator distinction led to his pride. The root of pride is unbelief. And then from pride comes all the other sins. Does everybody see that? Think, think of unbelief being the, the roots that produce the fruit that pride has as sin. So from unbelief comes pride. Like think of uh, unbelief as the roots, and then pride is the, the, the trunk of that tree. And then from that pride comes all of those sins. So what are the commands for an unbeliever? Repent and believe. Believe what? Believe you're not God and that your God has a plan for your life. So like I'm not him. So I don't make the rules. So I'm repenting for trying to make my own rules. I'm repenting for seeing myself in a light that is not true. Unbelief is a lie. 
Unbelief is a lie. Everyone has to understand that. Whatever Satan believed when he fell was a lie. It did not come to pass. Whatever Adam and Eve thought would happen did not come to pass. A certain measure of it did. Their eyes were open. They became God-like and knowing good from evil, but they did not become God in his uh, sharing God's nature. God wanted us to share in his nature and understand good from evil. Satan wanted us just to know good from evil and skip sharing in his nature. Satan thought that knowledge was enough, that knowledge would satisfy the soul. But the Bible says that knowledge enough just puffs up the soul. Knowledge doesn't do enough. It only puffs up. It doesn't satisfy the soul. Only God satisfies the soul. Can I get an amen? I think I went a little deeper than some of you could understand, but maybe let me slow it down because it's even hard for me to understand sometimes, okay? When Satan lied to them, was the lie that their eyes would be open. No, God even says afterwards, their eyes are open. They know good from evil like us, speaking about the triune relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. He said they're now like us. Just go to the Genesis. You'll see it. Sometimes people will point this out to you and say, what did Satan lie about if God says now they become like us? Just uh, This will help you understand. Look at Genesis chapter, chapter 3. No, it's going to be chapter, yes. Chapter 3, we have to put the, uh, the, the cherubim around there. Yes, there are eyes open in 7, but I want you to see God speaking. Verse 22 of chapter 3. Thank you for helping, though. You're in the right spot. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has become like one of us. Remember, Satan said, if you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you'll become like God. You remember that? Brother, just open up another tab so that they can also see it in verse uh, 6 and onward. Uh, well, let's just go up to verse 4 so they can see where the first temptation comes. Let's go to verse 2. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 1. No, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll start a chapter. I keep backing it up here. Before you know, it'll be in the beginning. In the beginning. And then we'll go all the way to Revelation, right? Sometimes it goes there in our services. But look, but look at chapter 3, verse 1. I think it will give you the context. Now, the serpent, we know is, is Satan, the devil, right, was more crafty than any other wild animal that God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, notice he lies. He's lying right there. It wasn't that they couldn't eat from any. It was that they couldn't eat from this one. So he's over-exaggerating the commands of God. Didn't God say you couldn't have any more fun now that you became a Christian? No, I'm just not having fun going to hell. I'm having fun going to heaven. Amen? As the old-timer said, we didn't quit dancing. We just switched partners. Amen? I'm dancing with the divine, which I won't do again for you. Now look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, she corrects him, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. Now notice, she even adds to her, you cannot touch it. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. He said you couldn't eat it. So even in her mind, she had a misunderstanding of God's commands. She probably thought God was being too harsh because of her language. Oh, my parents said I can't do anything fun. No, I said I, you can't do anything fun with the fools of this neighborhood, right? But you can do fun this way. So notice both her and the devil are telling partial truths. So they don't understand the full intent of what God is saying. Now notice what the devil says here in verse 4. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now notice in chapter 3, verse 22, 22, it says, man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. So right now you might say, as some skeptics of the Bible critics say, well, Hey, guys, Satan was actually telling you the truth. No, what is missing here? 
is that being like God in the knowledge of good and evil is one thing. Being like God, being able to overcome good from evil, being in his nature perfect is another thing. We lost our perfection to have more knowledge. Now ask yourselves, how's humanity doing merely with the knowledge of good and evil? They're not perfect, are they? But God has the knowledge of good and evil, and he's what? So that's why Jesus said, now go back to being perfect like your heavenly father. You have the knowledge now of good and evil, and you're like God in that way, but which way are you not like him? You're not like him in the nature, in your understanding, in your abilities to live good versus evil. We have the knowledge, but we don't have the character. We don't have the nature to handle this knowledge. Just like now you see the violence in our culture. Why is the violence here? Because our forefathers gave us the right to bear arms, but now we're taking that right and abusing it for for gangs on the streets. The, the, the founding fathers gave us the freedom of speech. Now we're taking that to the porn hubs. See, the intention of the freedom wasn't for that behavior. It's an abuse of that freedom. It's an abuse of that right. God gave us these freedoms and rights. Now we're using them to murder our own children. Come on, somebody. God gave us the wisdom to do science and all of these beautiful things like we can operate on a prenatal child, but now instead of doing that, we're killing them. God gave us the abilities to help fix hermaphrodites, body dysphoria, but now instead of doing that, we're chopping up good bodies like Mr. Potato Head and switching good bodies around and making them unhealthy. Instead of helping sick people become healthy, we're taking healthy people and making them sick. Instead of using the knowledge of good and evil to choose good, we're choosing evil. Does everybody get that? Thank you. Now going back to 1 John chapter 5, I guess I'll have to have a part 5 to this. I got caught in the introduction. Unless I keep you another half hour, which is always a good idea. For maybe next week when you don't have to go to work Monday, right? Go with me to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Starting in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Why do we need to be born again? Because we're born naughty in our nature. We have to be born again in the nature of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his what? Carrying out his what? His commands. Now notice in verse 3, in fact, this is love for God to keep his what? To keep his commands. And his commands are not what? Burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Hallelujah. Now notice he keeps going. He then says, who is it that, or this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our what? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So imagine now, back in that illustration, everyone's going to die unless you can go 200 miles an hour. Well, that's impossible in the movie Speed in the bus. But imagine if they were in a Ferrari. See, now it's possible, isn't it? When God asks us to keep his commands, he is not speaking to us as sinners in a nature that is corrupt. When we go out to the streets and we're telling them to repent and believe and follow these commands, we are putting first the transformation of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So it's not sinner, do this or that, and then equal salvation. No, we're only saying to the sinner, repent and believe. That's That's what we're saying. Because when you repent and believe, sinner, you become an overcomer at that moment. The sinner becomes a saint at that moment. Now for you as a saint, and how many saints do I have in the house here? Amen. The commands of God are a burden. 
I'll never forget this as a revelation and as a realization. The day I became a Christian, the commands of God were no longer the intimidating things I thought they were the day before. I was brought up as a church kid. And so to me, to tell me to keep the commands, it was like asking me to go 200 miles an hour. It was like, no, this is not going to happen. And if you're telling me I have to do this to be saved, well, then obviously I'll never be saved because that's not going to happen. I'm not going to stop lusting. I'm not going to stop cursing. This is as a part of me as my color of my eyes and the color of my hair. This is who I am. Have you ever heard sinners talk like that? That's how I talked as a sinner. But when I repented and asked Jesus to come into my heart, There was now a love for the commands of God where I didn't see them as impossibilities. I saw them as my instructions. Like I started reading the book of Proverbs and I'm like, I can do this. But I didn't say I can do it on my own strength. I believe that I could do it because greater is he that's within me than he that's in the world. I began to believe that now I'm more than a conqueror. So that which was conquering me has now been conquered and I've been given the victory. Hallelujah. You and I are not starting a race to end called salvation at the finish line. We are starting saved at the finish line. When Paul was saying, my job, going to Colossians 1.23, please, when he was saying, my job that I work hard at is to present you perfect to Christ, he didn't say, my job is to make you perfect in Christ. That's what I'm working so hard at, and you guys are making my job really hard because you're so imperfect. That's not what he says. He says in Colossians, he says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, or uh, excuse me, verse 28. He says there, he says, this is what I do, that I may present every person perfect in Christ. That I may present them perfect in Christ. Well, God's still working on me. In some ways that is true, but he's not working on your perfection. What he's working on is your behavior. And that's where now I want to go to the flesh quickly in closing. Can you guys give me a few minutes here in closing? Let me show it to you quickly. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Let's just talk about what the deeds of the flesh are and what is your flesh. Your flesh is your body. How many know you're not your body? Amen. You're not your body. How many know you could lose your finger and you're still your body? Now here's a philosophical argument. How many pieces of your body could you lose and still be you? Everybody's like, well, I guess I could lose everything up to my brain. You know, I guess I could just be a head in a vat or brain in a vat. Could you lose your eyes, your skull? It's a deep philosophical question. I believe you could go all the way down to a brain in a vat and still be you. Why? Because everything you would use to identify yourself with could be supplemented. You could get a new skull. You could get a new heart. You could get a new rib cage. Everybody's like, hey, I've watched Marvel too, Pastor. I see where you're going. You know, I see, or X-Men or something. Yeah, that's what it would look like. You would get all of these things rebuilt around you. But the you, that's you, would have to be the storage center called your brain. But guess what? In a biblical sense, you're not just your brain. Because now we go one step further and we say, when your brain dies, do you die? You physically die, but does your soul live on? Yeah. So this is what Jesus was talking about, that those who die physically don't have to die spiritually because those of us who have trusted God with our souls while we're in this body, our earth suit, think about that. You put on a space suit to go to heaven. Your soul put on an earth suit to come here. Okay? When we take off this earth suit and we're disembodied and we're in the presence of God, 
we're there because we've accepted and believed his message. But if we find ourselves in hell, that is now, in heaven is spiritual life, that's eternal life. And if we find ourselves in hell, eternal death, we're there not because we've done so many bad things. We're there because we've disbelieved in God and his plan. We've disbelieved in his salvation. We have not received his gifts. We have not taken in the new natures. Everybody get that? It's not merely our sins that send us to hell. It is primarily the sin of what? Unbelief. That sin, as we went to the roots before, grew up the trunk of the tree called pride and the fruit of all sin. So yeah, there'll be a lot of things on Judgment Day for God to point at us and say, yeah, you deserve to go to hell because you have the fruit of this and the fruit of, you know, let's just go through it. You've been sexually immoral, impure, debaucherous, idolatrous, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, you were selfish, you had dissension, you were fractious, you were envious, you were drunkard, you were part of orgies, and the like, right? So God could point to sinners and say, you are all of these things. But why are they there in hell? Because I was all of those things, or at least a lot of them, right? I mean, how many of you could fill up quite a bit of your, uh, the list here if I said, you know, underline yours? If I said underline the things you did and the ones you didn't do, you might have fantasized about doing. Let's be real. We were sick, sinners, right? But I get to go to heaven and the one who has just as much underlining to do there goes to hell. What's the difference? Jesus. But hold on, what did I do with Jesus? Because didn't Jesus die on the cross for them too? What did I do with Jesus that they didn't do? I believed. And then I did what? I repented, right? Okay. So now everyone understand that. That's, that those are the acts of the what? The flesh. So touch a piece of your flesh. Touch a piece. This, that's this. But are you this? No, you're not this. You're more than this. So now let's go to the solution. Go down, please. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have what with the flesh? Crucified the flesh with its passions and desire. Are you an it? No, let me help you right here, okay? We can help even the Supreme Court or whatever's going on. They're asking about are they they's or them's or he's or she's. Let me just help you here. You're not an it, but your flesh is an it. And your flesh comes in genders, right? And it not only comes in genders, it also comes with propensities. It comes with desires. How many of you woke up at some point in your body with desires you didn't wish you had? I did. I woke up at consciousness, five, six years old, and I didn't like my temper because my temper always got me in trouble. So I was born that way. I don't remember my parents teaching me how to be a rebellious child, but I had rebellion. Where did that come from? My flesh. And now we can understand this, and these are the two books I would have you look at. You Are Not Your Brain by Jeffrey Schwartz, and I believe it's The New You by Dr. Carolyn Leaf. And you'll begin to understand that now science has finally caught up to where Christians have been all along. The scientists of the, you know, neurosurgeons and, and neurologists and so forth, and psychiatrists and psychologists, they were all making fun of us. But they didn't realize they were at the bottom of the mountain. When they stopped making fun of us and actually went to work and started doing science, they climbed up the mountain of neurology, and guess who they found at the peak? They found the Christians already there holding this book going, thank you. When they first started doing psychology with Freud and all of that, you know what they believed? That your brain was in a stagnant, steady state that could not be changed. So if you had problems, what they had to do was knock out pieces of your brain. You ever heard of lobotomies? That was a part of science. So when everybody says follow the science, say, no, I'm only following the right science. 
I'm following that which is true, not just what they call science today. Okay? So you know why they wanted to chip out parts of your brain? Because part of your brain is bad, and there's nothing we can do to fix it, so we're just going to remove it. Anybody ever hear of electroshock therapy? That wasn't just something that they did to the handicapped or to the mentally ill. That was something they would try on you if you were having a bad day. Let's shock some things and, you know, put some electric electricity in there, see if it fixes you. Because we realize that there's electricity in the brain, and let's see if that will help. But you know what they began to find out? Is that the brain was elastic. And that the brain actually wasn't stagnant and in a steady state. That it actually had neuroplasticity. Google it. Neuroplasticity. And they began to understand that through cognitive therapy, they could change the waves of your brain without lobotomizing you, without trying to electroshock you, and without pumping you full of whatever chemical they thought you were missing. Okay, so if you're low on this vitamin, we'll give you that vitamin. They took that over to the brain. They go, oh, well, if you're sad, you must be low on serotonin. Let's give you a lot of serotonin. Or if you're anxious all the time, let's remove some chemicals and suppress them by doing these things. And now we're awakening to a whole new movement into brain science. Dr. Amen, watch his TED Talk, Think Church, Amen. He's done over 250,000 brain scans. We have now found out those, those things sometimes produce something good. The number one success rate among those with mental issues, whether they be severe schizophrenia to those mild of depression and anxiety and everything in between, it is changed by how you think and how you begin to behave in your mind. Mind over matter actually meant something as they went over the science. And so they began to see that you could change your brain by changing your patterns of thinking. How many have ever heard this before? Go to Romans chapter 12 in closing. I, I closed here last week, but hopefully I can get a little bit further if you just be patient with me. We have to change our brain by changing our mind first. Your mind is what uses your brain as a piano. Imagine being a, a pianist and you go to a piano and you want to play. Imagine you've been playing your whole life. But you go to this piano and it's out of tune. How would that sound? It would sound bad, right? But you know how to play. You know what the C is supposed to sound like. You know what the D, you know the chords. You're trying to do it, but it's not making any sense. I had nightmares like that when I'm trying to play my guitar and sing in front of people, and the whole thing is out of tune, and I can't change it. Has anybody ever been in a dream like that? Or you're a fighter, and, and, and I'm left-handed, and you're trying to punch with your right hand, and you just can't, you can't get that punch? Okay, I just have weird dreams then. I just, it's okay. Just, just a moment between me and the Lord. You know Jesus. So... Let's say you go and play a piano, but it's broken. You know it, dude. But it sounds like, you know, it sounds bad. So what do you do? What do you do? Do, do you say now that you're a terrible pianist, that you, that you don't know what you're doing? No, you change the piano. You tune the piano. So what they're now discovering is that mental illness is not a stagnant state of most of our brains. There can be illnesses that are about a part of our brain development, things that happen because it wasn't developed right. Down syndrome, some of these other ones can be affected by tumors that affect the parts of the brain that are, that, that are able to communicate with each other. But most depression, most anxiety, most phobias, most of your worst parts about you that you want to change could change right now if you did X, Y, and Z. But the world is going to tell you this, 
and leave out the God perspective. And what we as Christians are going to have above them and over this is that we know we're starting perfect in Christ. And so that we can have a peace in this transformation of our mind. And not only that, because we, because we know God loves us and he made us a certain way, but not only that, we can also have a goal and a target, which is to be like our father, because that's how we were made to be. You see, if you're a person that has same-sex attraction and you go to counseling, they're going to try to get you to suppress your conscience and the voice of God towards your behavior and to be an effective homosexual. Okay, I get these advertisements because I'm into this stuff and I Google it and then I get these advertisements on Facebook for same-sex therapy. And I'm like, I don't need this. I don't need this. But you'll see like a thruple. Like seriously, like, there'll be a thruple. Like we'll help you. Well, what are they going to do in that, in that counseling session? You know, don't hate yourself. Don't, you know. Well, first of all, why do they have to reaffirm all of these identities to these people if it's so natural to them? It's actually our perspective that explains why they're at unease and anguish because it's unnatural to how God made them. The dysfunction is trying to be made normal, and that's part of the problem. But anyways, they're going to try to help them function as a thruple. They're going to help the transgender adjust to the new body that they just butchered to give them, right? But is that going to really fix their soul? No. So you see, as a Christian, not only do you have the safe place to be in your heart where you can ease your mind by saying, God's in control. This will happen. God will do it. You'll have this peace that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Not only will you have that, you'll actually have the goal right. You'll have the finish line where you're going in your mind at the right spot. Can I hear an amen? Because if you don't have that, then you're in a rat race. And then you're going to be wondering why you need to see your counselor. And as they always say to me on the streets, when I ask them to talk about Jesus, they say, I'm good. I say, no, that's not what your counselor said. Right? And it's a sassy response, but isn't it true? They've gotten so used to going to counseling now, now they call it normal. How many grew up in a, in a time where going to counseling was not really the thing everybody did? But now everybody does it. Why? Because they're all suppressing what God wants them to be. And look this up, suicide rate among counselors. Suicide rates among those in the doctoral field, both in medical and in psychology, psychiatry, have some of the highest suicide rates. You want to know why? Because they're trying to fix people without God. You try to fix people without God, see how that goes, you'll become broken. Just do it. Google it. I'm telling you, it's true. Not just because Google said it, but the science has followed it up. These people think they're almost God-like because they can fix a broken bone. They can give you some good advice that they learned from Freud, and they're going crazy themselves. The truth is, is that Jesus gave us the answer. Here it is in closing. Daryl, would you come, please? Thank you. I appreciate everyone's patience. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your what? Your bodies as what? Living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. So let me take the most extreme. Let's say uh, someone comes back with PTSD from a war or someone that's had an abusive uh, background, okay? They have truly been traumatized in their brain. Their physical body bears the marks of their trauma. So you could look at the chemicals of their body and they may be releasing more of the stress hormones, and those things, and they can track with it, okay? They'll also look at the ambigula, the parts of the brain, and they'll be able to see that these parts are firing off way too much, okay? Is everybody tracking? I'm giving you what I think is an extreme example to help everyone here because even if you are in this, God is with you. Now watch. 
Everything I just named, your stress hormones, your ambigula, the chemicals inside of your brain, what is that a part of according to Paul here? What does he say that's a part of? Your body. And what are you supposed to do with that? Give it as a sacrifice. The first thing that I would say to you is you are not your body. If you are a Christian, you are a born-again, living soul made in the perfect image of God. You know what I had you just do? Detach from your trauma and stop identifying it as yourself. I have over 20 books on neuroscience. I have just given you something that was written 2,000 years ago that they're discovering right now. The first thing they teach you is that you're not your trauma. Trauma was done to you. Trauma is now having effects through you like a wave, like a wave of trauma came over you. It is on you. It is passing through you, but you are not your trauma. 2,000 years ago, Paul said, you are not your body. You are not your body. So right now, PTSD folks, traumatized folks, you're not your trauma. Stop saying, I am trauma. I am depressed. I am this. I am that. Stop speaking that because that's not what you are. You're not your traumatized body. Say what the scriptures say. I am the righteousness of God. I am a new creation in Christ. I am perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Right? Just start right there. Start right there and watch what will begin to change in your life. You know what they do in cognitive therapy? They've, and I've told you guys this before. You can see it done. I have one of the books by one of the, the, the chief scientists that do it. They put you on the, the scanner. They start to see the electrodes being light, lit up. They'll show you something of your past trauma, and you'll watch your brain scan go crazy. And you'll, you'll see it. Like, wow, that's what happens when you mention my father. That's what happens when you mention Iraq war, right? Like, th these people will see it. They'll watch their brain in real time. It helps them, right? Now watch this. They'll then say, hold up a picture of someone that you love, pull out your phone, look at your daughter, your son, your husband, your wife, and they'll look at their brain the very next second, and the brain begins to react differently. They'll just show them this. You can see this. This is something you can watch, right? What they have just taught them is the brain is responding to now what they're meditating on. Does everybody get that? When the father came up, they could see on the brain scan, your brain's not going to like this. The way this is right now, your brain is acting as if you're in the middle of a war and a battle, but you're not there anymore. Your, your brain is acting as if you're still being hurt by your father, but that's, you're here, you're safe, right? So what they said is, look at your child, look at something that you love, and you can see that the brain state changes. So how do they send them home? They give them homework assignments, and they begin to teach them. Come on, guys. Just, just check in with me here just for a few minutes. And they begin to teach them how to go throughout the day and do this. Watch a whole episode on someone with the fear of flying, learning how to fly. Exposure therapy. Learn all of these things. Why? Because if you're interested in this, you'll see how it will change your world. Now go back to the scripture. The, the theologian's already been here. We've already been trying to tell you this. You're not your lust. You're not your temper. You are not, Father, listen to me, men, your agitation after nine-hour, ten-hour days. Young people, you are not your hormones. There's an idea to take home and think about. You are not your past failures nor your past successes. You are not a body. 
you are a soul that is living inside of a body. And that body that will try to make you do things to lead you in temptation, that will make sin normalized for you, you or, or, or uh, anguish to make it a part of your pattern, you are to give that to God as a living sacrifice. You are to say, my body belongs to God. You are to be holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be ye what? Transformed. You want to know the Greek word for that? Metamorpho. That is metamorphosis. That is a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. But be metamorphosized by the renewing of your mind. Your mind will begin to change your brain and how it functions to all of these traumas and to all of this anguish and to all of this temptation. Then at that point, those who make it to this part of the verse, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and what kind of will? Come on, Presbyterians. Are you Presbyterians or Pentecostal? You'll be able to please his, you'll be able to test his what? His perfect will. Because you were made perfect. You were made to do perfect. That's why you were made. Your brain was made to do perfect. When you do not do perfect, your brain does not like it. Your body does not like it. When you eat too much, your body doesn't like it. When you think too much on the negative, your brain doesn't like it. When you hang around the wrong people, you know the whole culture now is talking about vibes. Your vibe won't like it. They'll put a bad vibe on you. Have you heard that before? How many can feel people's vibes when you're out with them? Man, you got the wrong vibe. Well, he's got the good vibe. The whole world is trying to learn this right here, and you and I were given it. You start in your perfect position as a Christian. Man, I'm perfect in Christ right now. I'm positioning where I'm right where I'm supposed to be. You then understand your nature has been changed. My nature's been changed. I am the righteousness of God. I'm a partaker of godliness. I'm a new creation. And then your behavior changes. But how did you change your behavior? How did you get to the point of perfect will? I obey the perfect will of God. How did you get to love the commands of God? Because you offered your body as a living sacrifice, and you did what? You were transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of the mind changes our behavior. So guess what? When I tell you that I was once depressed and Jesus took me out of depression, that's how it happened. When I tell you that I used to be anxious and I'm no longer anxious, that's how it happened. When I tell you I used to be addicted to smoking and all of that, that's how it happened. How many of you have been transformed by the renewing of your mind? Amen. Can we just pray now for those who haven't, who don't believe this? Maybe they'll change their mind, right? And believe it. The first thing you need to do if you don't believe this is repent for your unbelief. If you need to study more, so be it. But can I pray for you right now? Because I want to save you some time studying. At least experience it before you leave out of here. Lord, I pray for anyone here that hasn't had the renewal come yet. Lord, I pray right now that the life will be changed from the inside out. Lord, I pray for them to humble themselves before you and to have belief. Okay, I've prayed for you, so if you've come here and you don't yet know Jesus Christ, you haven't been born again, no one's going to embarrass you, ask you to stand or even raise your hand. I'm just giving you a chance where you're seated right now to repent for doing it the wrong way and to confess your belief in Christ right now and say, I'm going to do it the right way. 
You can pray something like this. Father, I believe in Jesus. He died, buried, rose again for me on the third day. I repent of my sins and I declare him as the Lord of my life. There you go. Start to pray something like that. rest of us pray for them right now. A few more moments before we go. Praying for those here who may not yet have made that decision. Repent and believe. Be made perfect in Christ. Everyone here can have it. Everyone here can have it. Even if you're going through the hardest time of your life, you can start right now to be perfect in Christ and take on these problems with Jesus. I would rather go through all the problems of the world with Jesus than to have an easy life without Jesus because there's still a final judgment, my friends. But I can promise you this. All those who are with Christ are going to have a blessed life. It may not always be an easy life, but it will be a blessed life. God will be with you. A few more moments, I pray for Christians to truly understand that today and for new people to become Christians, that they don't leave out the same way they came. Now, if you are a Christian and you already believe in Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to stand with me now and just begin to raise up your hands if you're already a Christian and ask the Lord to renew your mind right now to the mind of Christ. If you're already a Christian, altar workers, would you come? With the rest of the band, come on, ask God to renew your mind right now. Oh, Lord, would you change my mind from stinking thinking to the mind of Christ I want to be like my father I want to